we are in our final message. Welcome to the final message in our series on the church. Um, today what we're going to talk about is how, how do you define success? Um, there's all different ways to define success. And what does it mean to be successful in gospel ministry? Uh, it, it's, a, it's an interesting discussion that I want to take up this morning. And before I do that, I want to tell you a little bit, little bit about um, my life growing up. So all through my life, I've been a, a, a big-time athlete. From as long as I can remember, I played sports. And to the point where I was always at practice, always playing games, I was always involved in, in athletics. And in, in high school, I was a three-sport athlete. I played baseball, basketball, soccer. And over the course of my high school career, in every one of those sports at some point, we had won a state championship. Well, um, going, in, going into college, uh, I had great aspirations. Uh, what, what high school athlete does not have great aspirations for going to the next level? You know what I'm saying? Like, when you ask any kid what they want to do, and they're like, I'm going pro. And what's great about it is they really think it's possible. That's what blows me away. Anyway, um, but so thinking about going to college to play sports was, was an incredibly exciting thing for me. Um, I had a couple different opportunities, was talking with a couple different schools, and I ended up going to uh, my freshman year of school in Chicago and uh, went through a tryout with their, with their basketball program and ended up getting JV. And I was like, JV, that stinks. But we, you know, we'll work our way up. So I was on scholarship, played JV basketball. The coach was like, you know, if you play well, there was great opportunity for you to move up. And so, you know, I worked my tail off. I was in the gym as much as I could be, uh, hoping that I would be able to, to play varsity. About midway through the season, uh, they made an announcement they were going to be moving a couple guys up. I wasn't one of them. So that was pretty disappointing. Um, anyway, the season ended, uh, and baseball rolled around. I went from one sport to the next, played varsity baseball. As a freshman going into a varsity program, a lot of times, you know, you didn't see much playing time. Uh, and I kind of expected that going in, uh, trying to learn, you know, a n new system, and it's a whole nother level. And so going in as a, as a varsity baseball player, um, you know, I was, I was okay with with not getting as much time, that's fine. But what was funny was I was probably one of the faster guys on the team. So I was always the, uh, the pinch runner. So anytime they needed somebody, like anytime the catcher would come up, the way they speed up the game is the catcher gets on base. You got to have somebody run from him so we can get his gear back on, so we can get the game going. Um, and so the catcher would be on deck, and I'd get my helmet on. You know, I'd, I'd stretch real good. I'd run down the line and get all loose, get all ready to go, and he'd come up, and I'm just so anxious, so excited, he'd strike out. And I'd go over, take my helmet off, sit on the bench, and, you know, kind of do one of these numbers. Um, every now and then I'd get the opportunity to go down the line and play catch, you know, with the left fielder, warm him up, you know, at the beginning of the inning. You know, there are those exciting things. So as the season progressed, I started getting the hang of stuff, and I started getting a little bit, a little bit of playing time. Um, the final game of my freshman year, I got up, I hit a home run over the fence. And I was just like, it's over. Watch out next year. I mean, I was so amped about that. And uh, so anyway, I ended up transferring to a different school, Hannibal Grange. And similar situation, I came in, uh, got a scholarship to play JV basketball, same type of deal. There might be an opportunity to move up. We'll see how it goes. And actually played really, really well. Uh, led the team in scoring the whole, the whole time I played. 
Um, and people always ask me, how, how come you don't play varsity? And I was I don't know. I'm just working hard. If they want me, they'll come get me. But, you know, it's not happened at this point. Um, baseball, uh, my sophomore year, I had a new system, new coach, new school. So I was learning that. Um, I, I did pretty well. I got some playing time off and on. Um, and midway through the season toward the end, I, I had a shoulder injury. And I, I couldn't play. And I ended up having to re- get rehab and and get that taken care of, and it, it sat me out my entire junior year. I had this long discussion with my coach. We sat down. He's like, here's the deal. If you sit out, it's really going to cause problems your senior year. You're going to come in having missed an entire year, and you're going to be way behind. And I was like, I know. I'll work real hard. It's, it's really what I need to do. And so, so anyway, I come in my senior year, and, you know, we're preseason. We're in the cages, you know, in the winter, and we're doing all different activities, and the coaches are telling me, like, you know, we're really impressed with where you're at. We're excited about your progress. We never imagined you'd be this far. And so it, it was exciting to hear what they were saying, hear, hear the opportunities. Game one comes, I'm, I'm starting in the outfield. Uh, we always play double headers. Uh, first couple games, I was, I was in the starting lineup every single game, every single game. So I started getting incredibly excited, like, I'm going to play every game this year. And I started thinking about, you know, how many stolen bases I was going to have, and I was gonna, actually going to be able to track my stats instead of, like, you know, you have a situation where, you know, a guy plays, like, six games and he gets, like, you know, 12 at-bats or whatever, and then the stats really don't mean much. And so I was excited about actually being a legit varsity baseball player. Well, partway through the season, there was this freshman who started playing really well. And it ended up that he, I'd play the first game, he'd play the second game of the doubleheader. Well, he started doing so well that he eventually took my spot. And then a guy got hurt, and I got back in, so I was real excited about that. I didn't tell him that. And then there was one game where I just played terrible. And I don't know why, but from that game on, there was another freshman. I hate freshmen. There was another freshman who, who started playing over me. And it was just kind of this disappointment. I became, you know, the pinch runner as, as a senior, which is kind of discouraging. And then in the basketball program, uh, my, we, were, we were in the last game of our, the final game of my basketball career, and it was a close game all the way through. And all through high school, I was able to dunk. Going through college, I, I had never dunked in a college game. We're in the final game. We're up one or two points. And I steal the ball and have this breakaway. And, and everyone in the stands knows that I can dunk. And, like, I didn't see it at the time. I saw it in a video afterwards. But everyone, as I'm, as I'm going down, everyone just stands up. And they're like, here it comes. Here it comes. And it was like, you know, we're going to finish this game. I'm going to dunk. And we're going to go up. And then, you know, there's not much time left in the game. We're going to win this thing. So I go up. The ball slips out of my hand. And I just, I just fumble it, and I'm like, reach, no, reaching for it. And uh, the other team gets it. They go down, and they score, and they end up winning. And, and that's, that's how I ended my, my uh, basketball career as a college uh, athlete. Um, and so I look back, and I'm like, I feel like there's so many times I was so close. Like, you know, can I define those times as, as successful or not? Now, I, I would argue that, I was successful because I gave everything I had every time I played. But I want to talk this morning about 
how do we define success in church life? What does it look like to be successful? Because we have to keep in mind that we're not, we're not a business. So success looks different here than it does at Boeing. Okay, why don't you turn to the passage that Rebecca read, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here's the question that I want to address the entire time this morning. I think there's one question that can be a benchmark for us to know how well we are doing and to measure success. Here's the question. Is the gospel being advanced? Is the gospel being advanced? There's a book that I've been reading called Total Church, and in this book, uh, the, the authors say, if we view success in a biblical way as faithfulness to Christ and his word, then being gospel-centered becomes the very definition of success. So, so we're talking like, what does it mean to be successful as a church, but also what does it mean to be successful as, as a believer? How do, how do we define uh, obedience in our lives in, relation, in our relationship with Christ? Because it's not about numbers. Numbers don't equate success in the Christian life and in church life like they do in, in business. So in 2 Timothy, you're probably familiar, this is the, the final letter that Paul writes. He writes it to his son in the faith, Timothy, and basically here, here's what he's saying. I've, I've fulfilled my ministry, and I'm going to send you off, Timothy, to go, and he's going to tell him everything that he knows to tell him to prepare him for what Paul just endured and Timothy is about ready to endure. I think there's some things we can take from this passage that give us great insight into what does it mean to walk with Christ? What does it mean to be a church that lives out the mission that God has for us? Verse 1. Oh, we're going to take it bit by bit. Uh, we'll start with verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Think, think about that. Um, Paul oftentimes started with statements like this. That, that grace would be a means of strength. Okay, so the tendency, Paul's telling Timothy, here's the tendency. You're going to have a tendency to, to try to do things on your own. Like, that's our natural bent. Like, I can handle this. Yeah, I'm competent. I don't, I, don't, I don't need help. I know what I'm doing. And, and he tells him, grace. Anytime you seek to begin to live outside of the strength that God provides for your life, there's going to be problems. And he's like, don't lose sight of the, the strengthening grace that God will provide. Because when you seek to live outside the strength God provides, here's what you're doing. You're seeking to, live in, to build a name for yourself rather than pointing people to the most precious thing in the world, namely Jesus. Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 12 when he said, or Jesus was talking to him and said, my, my, my strength is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. It's a brilliant passage that, that reminds us of God, God has to empower what we do if there's going to be any value in what we do as believers. God has to empower it. If, if our lives, if our ministry, and when I say ministry, I'm not just talking about like, this church, because the reality is, is that every single one of you, if you're a child of God, are ministers of the gospel. 
And so if our ministry is going to be grace-saturated, if it's going to flow out of grace, then there has to be this reliance upon the Lord strengthening us. Otherwise, here's what we do. We don't give people Jesus. We give him a self-fabricated version of Jesus that isn't him at all. And then we're liars. And then we're really not loving people because we're not giving them the most precious thing in life. Look at verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trusted faithful men who will be able to teach others also. If you've been around church long at all, there's a word that you've heard over and over and over again to the point where you're, I don't know whether you hate the word or you love the word or you don't know what to do with the word. It's the word discipleship, right? You've heard that word. Well, That's what Paul's talking about. So it's not a bad word. It's a good word. And it's what we're called to as a church, as the people of God. Look back at that verse. How many generations of disciples does Paul bring up there? See, four? Four generations of disciples. He's like, I poured into you. You need to pour into another who's going to pour into another. Here's what I want you to do when you go, when you leave this place today. When you go to lunch... You go to the grocery store, or next time you're at the Cardinal game, or wherever you go, I want you to just look around at people. You ever, like, watch people? It can be pretty entertaining at times. Um, I just want you to just look around. The majority of the people that you see are people that are dying and on their way to hell. Now think about, you're called to be a minister of reconciliation in bringing them back to God. Okay, is that not the most discouraging, overwhelming feeling in the world? How many people fit in Bush Stadium? Anybody know? And think, yeah, 45? It's your calling. For real? How in the world? It's so, so overwhelming. Is it not? Like it is for me. I think about that all the time. Go, go, look around at your workplace. Think about all the people that are on their way to an eternity apart from the goodness of God, and then think about you're responsible to tell them. But here's what Paul's saying. That method doesn't entirely work because what you need to do is you need to pour into others who will pour into others who will pour into others. And so when we think about it like, okay, all of us are going to go take over Shop and Save down there, and we're going to start telling people about Jesus. It's a whole different ballgame than if, like, I'm doing this by myself. Like, there's a whole bunch of people. That's what discipleship is. That's what multiplication is, is that it becomes this thing where it's not just like, oh, the pastor better go do this. Well, we just chill back and, you know, let us, you know, send us a letter, how we can pray. No, we're all involved. We're all called to it. It's the calling to discipleship. And discipleship engages our own hearts with the gospel. Look at this quote. Success is not judged by a sermon or a service. As a church, we can't judge success entirely by what happens right here, week in and week out. And I think there's some gauge there, but that's not entirely what success is measured by. It is judged in terms of growing Christians and gospel opportunities. You look at the last three and a half years that we've had as a church, there's been incredible growth internally. I mean, I would love to bring some of you up and hand this mic to you and say, Tell us what God's done in your life in the past three years. And some of the stories are just amazing. 
And there's been incredible gospel opportunities. Now, we obviously haven't arrived. We obviously aren't there. But I firmly believe God is at work. There's a lot to do, but God is at work. Discipleship is a huge thing. Um, let's look at three illustrations. Some, a couple of these you'll be able to identify with, but Paul's going to go into three examples that really are going to help us define success. Verse 3. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So what are the, what are the three illustrations? Number one, you have what? A soldier. Number two, you have an athlete. Number three, you have a farmer. Let's talk about these three examples that all give us great insight into what are, what are we called to as believers. And the first one, a soldier. I'm going to define it as the, as the mission-minded soldier. It says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Okay, think about a soldier. What do you know about a soldier? They don't work a nine-to-five job. They're, they're on it 24-7. They belong to the military. Their time is dictated. If, if they're allowed to go home, at any point, they can be called back. Okay, they are not their own. They're expected to go on missions and willingly give up their life if necessary. That, that's, that's what a soldier is. That's what a soldier does. But not only just give up their life, but without even hesitating. Like, that's their, that's their calling. I don't know about you guys, but I've always wanted to, to do that. There's just always something that intrigued me about, like, being in the Marines. And just think, it's really cool. I used to, like, play guns growing up. Come on, guys. You know you did it. But here's the illustration that Paul's using. That's a picture of the Christian life. This is battle. This is a war that we're fighting. Now we're not fighting it with guns and tanks. Ephesians 6 talks about, let me just read it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So what are we fighting against? We're fighting against the enemy, the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So even the, your worst opposition isn't who you're really battling. The people that you sit next to the, in the cubicle next to or the, the person that sits in the desk that you're going to sit next to when school starts here in a little bit, um, they're not your opposition. The enemy is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil. Do you get that? If you knew that the second you walked out that door, you were going to be absolutely overtaken. potentially destroyed in battle. You think you'd just be like, oh, see you guys later, and just walk out? No. It would totally change your perspective of how you went out that door. 
if you ever went out the door. Would it not? But that's, that's the mentality that we forget. And Paul's like, hey, you're a soldier. It's, it's, it's a battle. The Christian life is a battle. And unless you're prepared, you're going to fall on your face. We just kind of live, live back on our heels and just kind of take life how it goes. We wonder why. We're just getting smoked left and right. Because we're not prepared for the battle. We don't recognize what it's about. But a soldier seeks to please the one who enlists him. The second illustration in verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. This is a common metaphor that Paul used a lot. Don't you hate people who didn't compete according to the rules? I hated it. There's always those, those little jerks that were like too short and they'd like pull on your shirt because you know, you were taller than them, and they, they tried to just get, a, you know, ways to get around it uh, because they weren't good enough, and so they just kind of cheat. I always hated them. I just, you know, you just push them. Oh, wait, that's cheating. Um, can't do that. that. This is the illustration that, that Paul's using. In, in this culture, let me tell you about the culture a little bit. They had, uh, athletics was a big part of, the, of Greek life, and for, for an athlete in the Greek games, there were three things that they were required in, in order to, to participate. Number one, they had to be a true-born Greek. Number two, they had to train for at least 10 months and swear to the fact that they did it. And then number three, they had to follow the rules for that event to the T. And if ever they failed to do that, they were disqualified. If they did not meet all three of those perfectly, they were disqualified. Okay, now, now, now think about that in terms of what we're called to. Some of you totally resonate with, with athletics. What does it get you when, you when you cut corners? What does it get you when you fail to work hard? As a coach, I always hated it when guys would be like, let's say they're sprinting to this line and they'd come, they'd come up and they'd you know, get like four inches from the line. Well, you make them run extra. No, you touch the line like, you know, they're, they're cutting corners. Think about the Olympics. If you're training for the Olympics, what does that take? Can you just kind of half-step it? You're never going to get anywhere. And that's the, that's the example that, that Paul is using in an athlete, someone who's seeking to, to get the prize. Paul talked about run in such a way as to, to get the prize. That's what we're called to. That's what, that's what God asks of us, that we don't cut corners, that we don't compromise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone conscious in the sight of God. For even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Think about churches and ministries in our in our country that just have people flocking to them why because they're compromising the gospel they're watering it down they're making it sound good guys it's offensive it's offensive to tell someone you're a wretched sinner that's on your way to hell that's offensive and so what do we do? We'll just stop talking about that, and we'll just, you know, tell people that God loves them, which is true, too. 
and we'll just, you know, invite them for some social groups and, and just have a big party and give them comfort on their way to hell. No, we're, we're, we're not called to compromise. We're called to stay true to the message of the gospel. The third illustration is probably one of my favorites. Think about a farmer. Look at verse 6. It says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. Okay, think about a farmer for a second. He starts his day super early. He works super late. He has to endure cold. He has to endure heat. He has to endure rain. He has to endure drought. He has to plow the soil, whether the soil's hard or soft. Uh, When weeds come up, he has to get after them or they'll take over. Think about all the hard work that's required. If, If he doesn't take the harvest when the harvest is there, he'll lose it. Okay, there's so many things that are demanding of a farmer. But here's what blows me away about the farmer. Think about this. In the end, the farmer doesn't have much control at all. Because he has no say in when it rains or when it doesn't rain. He has no say in when the sun shines, how much the sun shines. He has no say in all the pests that come and eat the crop. He can try to prepare and plan, but at the end of the day, the farmer can do all of these things, but unless God brings the rain, unless God brings the sun, unless God produces the crop, it's not going to happen. And what this illustration is saying I think, I think it's depicted well in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So the things that we're called to as believers, can I tell you something incredibly freeing? God's got to do it in us. Now, that's not a cop-out. I'll, I'll share a story with you at the end where God had to do it in me. But God has to do it in the same way that he does it in the farmer. The farmer can work so hard and do everything perfect and in the end not get the results he wanted. It's, it's God's work. He's got to do it. And then verse 8 is kind of funny to me. So Paul is talking to Timothy, and Timothy's a minister. And, and Paul says to Timothy, hey, um, uh, Remember Jesus. What? He's a minister. How are you going to forget Jesus? I mean, come on. Seriously, duh, remember Jesus. Oh, thanks for that one, Paul. That was good advice. So there's, I I think, been this resurgence in a lot of evangelical churches in the past year or two where churches are coming to this realization that they've neglected the gospel. They've forgotten what life is about. They've forgotten what the calling of the Christian life is about. And they're coming back to this place of like, oh shoot, for the past you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, we've kind of neglected the fact that the gospel is what it's all about. That's what Paul's saying. Do a word study when you get home or whenever. Look up the word remember. See how many times you see the word remember in the Bible. It's over and over and over again because you know what? We're prone to forget. 
What ways do you have in your life that you tangibly remember Jesus? That's why we take communion every single week. Are there there things in your car or the things at your house or the things around that help you remember what this whole thing, what this whole life is about? Or is it just like when you walk in this door and you're like, oh yeah, this is about Jesus because some guy just said Jesus' name. But there's something more profound about this. Jesus in what state? What does it say? Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. I think that's very intentional because here's why. We talk about the cross all the time, which is good, and we should, but here's the deal. If Christ is not raised from the dead, the cross has no meaning at all because Jesus then is the same as every other false god. He's not who he claimed to be, and he's dead. And so that's why Paul says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. That it's the resurrection power of Christ that's in you and I, if you are a child of God. It empowers you to live obediently. Listen, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was like six. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have made much sense. But I didn't learn this deal until like five years ago. That it's the power of Christ in me that enables me to do this thing. So God just didn't, you know, up in heaven like, good luck, it's pretty tough down there. You're going to fail. And I'm going to be mad at you because that's what I do. God's like, I never intended for you to live the Christian life. I'm going to live it in you and through you. I'm going to empower you. The problem is that you don't let me do that. Verse 9. It tells him to remember Jesus risen from the dead, the offering of David as I preach in my gospel, for which, verse 9, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's talk for a second about the advancement of the gospel through suffering. Now, our our natural bent is to run from suffering. We had this conversation uh, in, in, our, in my community group on Wednesday about how weird is it to pray for suffering. Uh, I'd, I'd been to a church several months ago, and they were doing a series through First Peter, and the pastor was challenging the church that, that we be a church that prays that God would bring suffering into our lives. And so, you know, I've been wrestling with that and thinking about that. We talked about that on Wednesday. H- how weird is that, that we pray for suffering? But here's the deal. The gospel is never more advanced and, and God is never seen more valuable than in the times when we suffer. Why? Because that's when Christ's worth is seen. Think about it. That's when the value of who he is is seen. You know, we talk about 
the example of refining gold and the impurities that come out and and how does the goldsmith know when it's ready is when he can see his reflection in it that's what suffering is and that's why there's suffering in the christian life but what paul is telling timothy is i'm bound with chains as a criminal therefore i endure everything for the sake of the elect here's what i need to say to myself all the time why is it that as a follower of Christ, if I'm seeking to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, do I think that my fate should be any different than his? If I'm seeking to be like him, what did he do? His life was defined by suffering, by opposition, by rebuke. Why shouldn't ours? And what did he do in the midst of that? He made much of his father. He made much of his father. What are we called to do in it? Make much of our Father. Make much. That's the beauty of suffering. Man, might we one day get to the place where we could pray, God, bring suffering into my life. But let me, I want to think about this for a second. Because I think the natural tendency is this. Well, suffering, if we live in America, and it's not like we're going to be persecuted for our faith. Yeah, somebody might you know, laugh at us, but come on, it's really not that big of a deal. You know, no one's going to skin us alive or behead us for talking about Jesus. We're not going to get thrown in prison like Paul. Come on. What is this whole deal about suffering other than, like, you know, losing friends or broken relationships or death? Well, let me give you some examples of, of just what I think it means for us to suffer. Uh, how good are you at making sacrifices? Maybe God's calling on your life is to take a lesser paying job because you have greater ministry opportunity at that job. Or not take a promotion. Or to hang out with a different group of friends at school because you have greater ministry opportunity than to hang out with, like, you know, the, the cool crowd. If that's, that's making sacrifices. Have you ever been around people that are just hard to be around sometimes? I guess all of us are at some point hard to be around. Okay, what would it look like for us to actually begin to engage people that we don't personally like or we don't have a natural draw to? Think about ministry that that we're talking about is messy. When you get into lives of people that that are lost, that don't know Jesus, now granted our lives are messy and God's at work in us. I'm not trying to, you know, draw lines, but what I'm saying is that that you begin to get involved in people's lives. It's messy, and you're going to have to engage with people that you don't want to engage with. And it's hard work, and it's awkward. I mean, I'm in conversation with a nursing home right now about how we can can serve them. People that are, their lives, they're at the end of their race, and one day they're going to Soon, stand before God and give an account for their life. Soon. There's nothing comfortable about being in a nursing home. If you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But when you think about what it means to be a soldier, to live on mission, it totally changes your perspective about what you're about. When's the last time you went out of your way for someone? How about you let somebody live in your house? such a great picture of discipleship 
It's just a natural progression of discipleship. What about being comfortable? You know, we love being comfortable. We'll do everything we can to be comfortable. But part of our calling is to not be comfortable. It's to get out of this place of, I want to be a certain way. I want things to go a certain way. And so what we do is we never engage people in difficult conversation. This is probably one of my weaknesses. I hate awkward conversation. I hate awkward silence. Hate it. That's what we're called to. Not awkward silence, but difficult, awkward conversation, relationships. It's what we're called to. When's the last time you invited your neighbor into your house? You know, like sit down on the couch and you're like, let's go back out on the lawn. It's so much, you know, you know, easier than like you come into the house and all of a sudden like change the whole game. When's the last time you did that? It's uncomfortable, yeah. And you can talk with your, you know, friend or spouse or whoever later about how uncomfortable that was. But, man, we've got to do this stuff. And I'm looking in the mirror right now and saying this. Because I haven't arrived by any means. But at the end of the day, here's the deal. The advancement of the gospel is not on us. Now, I don't say that as a cop-out, but I say that as this. That if you won't do it, if I won't do it, God will find someone else and we'll miss the blessing. God's not up in heaven like, man, Nikki, you better just do this, or Rick, you better do this, or I'm really dependent upon you, Cody, you know, don't drop the ball. No. And he invites us to be a part, which I'll never, I'll never fully get. What, a, what an incredible blessing. What an incredible blessing. Paul states the blessings that come from that in verse 11 and verse 12, but let's go to verse 13, and I want to end with the gospel being advanced and and talk for just a minute about the faithful Savior. Look at this verse. I love this verse. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul started in verse 1 with grace, and he ends here, in this part at least, the passage doesn't end, but here we're ending this part with grace. The grace that God is faithful when you're not. God is never more faithful than when we are not faithful to him, that when we are faithless. Last year, I was teaching at North County Christian School, and there's a specific student. I won't mention his name. We'll call him John. There's some NCCS people here. Um, we'll call him John. And John just had a, a tough home situation. Uh, the whole time they're going to be trying to figure out who I'm talking about. I love it. Um, John, John just had a tough home situation. Parents were going through a whole mess of stuff um, financially, and divorce was uh, on the line. And, and I had this kid in class for several years. And I knew that he was just pushing God away, pushing God away, pushing God away. And I really sensed that God was telling me that I needed to engage him. And you know what? I didn't want to. So I just resisted it. I just resisted it. Well, every day, during, during a certain hour of the day, John was a student aide or an office aide. And it was this hour, and I'm sitting here in my office, and I'm like, I need to go get him. 
and bring him into my office and, and, and just see how things are going and talk with him. And I was like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to. My phone rings. It's the secretary. She goes, uh, hey, Dave, uh, I have some things in my office. Just wanted to see if these were yours or if you needed them and there was something that I needed to get from her. And I was like, yeah, those are mine. You know, you know, I can get them. That's fine. She's like, oh, it's no problem. I'll just send John down with them. I was like, okay, thanks. And I hung up the phone and like it, it just hit me. And like, here's what hit me. In that moment, I totally felt like God was saying, I'm going to be faithful to you. This is what I'm calling you to. Obedience is hard. I wasn't willing to go get him. God's like, I'm going to bring the opportunity to you. He walked in my office for 30 minutes. We talked about Christ. Kid just wept and wept. Just opened up his life and just talked in ways that I never knew he would ever share with me. I just told him about Christ. And he went out of my office and I was just like, God, you are so faithful. And I pray I never forget that, that story, but the truth that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. It's his character. It's who he is. A faithful God. This is how we define success. God, you got to do this thing. You got to do this thing called obedience in my life. Because I'm not very good at it. And God's like, I know. We're working on that. But I will be faithful to you. And so my, when people ask us about what God's doing in our life, people ask us about what God's doing in this church, might our answer be, God is faithful. Nothing else but God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name. I'll never get it. Your love is so extravagant. Your faithfulness, not even in this moment. God, might that just overwhelm us. That we are adulterers, faithless, self-serving people. And yet your pursuit of us your faithfulness. God, help us to remember that as a church. Help us to remember that as, as your people. And God, might, might that always bring us back to you. God, some of us, I believe, are at a place in our lives where we're just, we're distant from you. And we're distant from you because we're scared we're scared that you're the God up in heaven that's looking down and is saying, what are you doing? And just pouring out judgment. But God, in this moment, I pray that your love and your grace 
would flow in this place that we'd see you to be a God that's like, come, come to me. I know you're faithless. I know you're not very good at loving me. But I will be faithful. I'm working our midst. Have your way among us. You are good and you are faithful and we praise you.